All right now, you're listening to the Real Texas Radio Podcast. I'm your host, Bronin, just a fed-up taxpayer, bringing you all of your Texas local and national news. Welcome to the show. Thank you for tuning in. And if you haven't already, please subscribe and like on whatever platform that you are listening in from Amazon, Apple, Google, Spotify. Your likes and subscriptions are greatly appreciated. Thank you so much. And I want to kick off the show today by talking about my husband and I, we went to the movies and today is June 12th. It is very hot as I'm recording this podcast. It's over a hundred degrees. It's possibly the hottest temperatures I've ever felt in my entire life. And I say that not to complain. I much prefer this to winter and darkness at 4 p.m. But I'm just pointing it out, and it was actually, in a sense, a perfect day to go to the movies. We took in that air conditioning that we do not have blasting here at home, and we actually saw a film, A Star is Born, that was released originally in 1954, and it stars Judy Garland and James Mason. It's a wonderful movie. It was one of the first movies filmed in CinemaScope, widescreen, which was big technology back then in the 1950s. And it's Technicolor, and Judy Garland is potentially at her peak. In fact, her birthday was June 10th, and she would have been 100 years old. Of course, she died at the age of 49, and she was a great talent. She, she looked a lot older than 49 when she passed. It was very sad. But... We saw the movie. My husband had never seen it. I've seen it many times. I'm a big fan, and I love the songs. And James Mason, he is spectacular in it, too. And there are some other big names in it. Um, it, It's really worth seeing if you haven't. And I've never seen it on a big screen, so it was a big opportunity. I'm always on the lookout for movies, the classics that I like. And sometimes it's great to see them on a big screen and you see them with the true fans. There, there weren't many of us in the theater, God. There couldn't have been 10 of us, I'd say. But we had a couple of Bloody Marys and we had a nice time. And the, the movie, it's actually it's very long. It runs over three hours, so they actually put an intermission in it. And there was originally an intermission in the movie. So something I thought about, one of the characters in the movie, he plays Oliver Niles. It's the actor Charles Bickford. And he plays the head of a movie studio. And he makes a comment a few times about the economy and and that times are tough. And so this was in 1954. And when the movie was released, it was a very modern picture. It was set in modern times. And... I found the comment interesting for a number of reasons, but often when we think back on the 1950s, of course, many things come to mind. Racial segregation, Brown versus Board of Education. But then there's also the very consumerist picture of the 1950s. 
the post-World War II era, the kind of burgeoning suburban middle class, and a, a lot of people reflect on the 1950s as a, as a golden era in terms of music and in terms of family and American values. And, you know, I guess it depends what kind of a lens you're looking through. But whenever you reflect on an era, there, there's always multiple stories. There's always multiple points of view. And it, it reminded me of the Great Recession, which began back in 2007, 2008, at the end of George W. Bush's second term. And that was a formative period in my life because I was, I was graduating from high school, I was heading into college, and I was becoming aware of what the economy really was, and I was becoming familiar with politics, and I, I was becoming an engaged citizen and adult. And as I was planning for this podcast, I, I was thinking about how tough that period was in, in a sense, right? So do you remember the big banks needed to be bailed out, Bank of America, American Express, and Wall Street was in a crisis, Bear Stearns and Lehman Brothers went belly up, and Bernie Madoff was a household name at the time, who was a Ponzi scheme wealth manager. And if you remember Ellie Weissel, the Holocaust survivor and famous author of the memoir at night, which many of us have had to read in school, he was duped. He put a lot of his money in with Bernie Madoff. Uh, both of those men are dead now. Millions of jobs were shed over that period and the housing market collapsed. You could pick up a condo in Florida for $50,000, $60,000. The car industry is perhaps the most memorable from that period. If you recall GM and Chrysler, they almost went out of business. They had to go before Congress and beg for money. At first, they flew in and then they got a ton of bad press. The CEOs of those companies, the leadership flew in to DC and they asked for bailout money. And then the press asked, so oh, why didn't you drive? How come you didn't drive here in your car? So they ended up, I think they drove back later on. Anyway, they got their bailout money. Ford didn't, they didn't take any money. And they went through tough times too, of course. But that, that was a strength. A, a bragging rights point for Ford that they didn't need that bailout money. But GM, it, it's a very different looking company. If you recall brands like Pontiac and Saturn, they folded, they're gone now. GM really had to slim down. And it was during this time that there was a lot of talk about the gas mileage and the American big three automakers they were producing these huge cars, these clunkers, remember that term, that got terrible gas mileage. It was like around 20 miles to the gallon or less if you were in a big SUV or a truck. And they couldn't compare to the Japanese automakers who were getting 30 miles to the gallon or thereabouts. I'll come back to my point about cars in a moment, but I mentioned that as a result of the 
Great Recession back in 2007 through, it lasted for several years, but millions of jobs across all sectors were lost. They were shed. And after my first year of college, which ended in 2009, I remember I was looking for a summer job and I went into Marshalls and I applied. And I ended up getting the job, just a lowly associate, barely making above minimum wage, federal minimum wage. And when the manager hired me, he said, you know, there were 14 people who applied for this job and you were the only one that I hired. And after I'd worked there for a couple of months and I ended up working there on and off for like three years seasonally, you know, I'd go away to college, I'd come back on the breaks and I I liked the people who worked there. I liked the managers I got on and there were, you know, it it was just a, it was a lowly job at the time. I I mean, no disrespect to anybody who's working in, um, in retail, but you know, I I didn't have a position of significance. I wasn't, I, I never rose to like assistant manager or coordinator or anything like that. But what I found so striking was that if, if I worked there during the day, if I worked there on a weekday, for example, and it, it was like lunchtime, the place would be packed, this Marshalls. And granted the location, it was in a wealthy suburb of Boston. So it was just outside of Boston. But, you know, if, if I'd worked there at night, the managers would tell me how much we made during the day. And it could be 30, 40, 50, $60,000 a day some days. And you would never know that there was the great recession going on in the background based on the people who were shopping, based on the volume. This is just one store. Obviously, Marshalls is part of the TJX Corporation, which is huge. And, you know, I also remember there would be people coming in and I'd ring them out and they were buying clothes for job interviews. And and sometimes you'd chat to the person for a minute and they, they sounded bleak that, you know, it would be post-middle-aged women, and they knew what they were up against trying to go out and get a job in that environment. And so so I'm going back to my point about A Star is Born, the movie, and the character, Oliver Niles, who is making the comments about the tough times for the movie business, and that was in the 1950s, the mid-1950s. And... I recall the Great Recession as being really tough, too, economically. I remember it for my parents. I remember just reading, like, any story you'd read in the paper or you'd see on the news. It was just terrible news. And then I was working at Marshall's, and the place, they were selling merchandise like it was going out of style. It was nuts. When the great COVID hoax started in 2020, I was really worried that we were going to just be repeating the Great Recession or possibly making it even worse. But any jobs that were lost, and and many people who lost their jobs, they were able to get on welfare, and they were able to get state and federal welfare in many cases. But it, it seems like 
the economy picked right back up. The jobs, like even now, when um, when we were at the movie theater, one of the ads that came on before the movie, A Star is Born, was the chain was hiring for all kinds of positions, cooks, servers, management. And, you know, the movie theater business, I thought that was on its last legs. So it's crazy to think that now they're hiring for all these positions. I remember reading about the chain that we went to, the Alamo Draft House, which is in the Texas area. And they have several locations in Dallas and surrounding areas. That was that was on its last legs. But now it does seem like there is some life in the movie business. Another Batman movie has come out. I think Jurassic Park, another one, is out in the theater now. And Top Gun is supposed to be a big shot in the arm for the movie theater business. And I hope it is. That seems like it'd be a shame if the movie business went under totally. If you never got to be able to go out to the theater to see a movie again. And I certainly go much less. And certainly when there were the COVID restrictions, if if you thought I was going to be wearing a mask during a movie, I mean talk about something you'd never see that wasn't going to happen no kind of way but you know i even thought about this is potentially the first time i've been to the movies since the nonsense began my husband and i we used to go somewhat regularly and you know sometimes it's just nice to to watch a movie off of your couch in a different environment so anyway, back to the point that I wanted to make about cars. As I've mentioned on the show before, I, I don't own a car now. I haven't for the last three years. And one of the big reasons is I work from home. And I have calculated that it, it would cost me probably $600 per month if I were to get a, I'm talking about a very modest size car, a small sedan or a hatchback. And I cannot justify it. I cannot justify those costs from working at home. I will concede there are times, like even going to the movies today, it would have been so much easier if my husband and I could have just gotten in our private vehicle and gone to the movies and, and we didn't need to get a lift as we did both ways. And the, uh, the public transit, we could have done that too. It would have taken a while. We would have had a transfer the heat index is is pretty serious, so we didn't want to mess with that. Or occasionally, there are times when I think, wow, I'd like to take a road trip. I'd like to cross state lines, maybe go visit a state park or go look at some scenery or something like that. And yes, it would be nice to have a personal vehicle and not have to worry about the hassle of renting or anything like that. But by and large, I don't need the personal vehicle. And if I had one, I would walk less. I would probably go more frequently to stores that I shouldn't be in, that I I don't need to be making superfluous purchases or going on trips to Walmart or anything like that. So I, I really think that quality of life, it's probably better without having the car. Believe it or not, I am increasingly meeting people in the Dallas area and in Dallas who don't have a car and they cite a lot of the same reasons. If they really need, they can get in a Lyft or an Uber, but they are walking more. 
Some people bike. Honestly, I think it's nuts biking around Dallas. We do not have the infrastructure for it here, which I do think it's a shame. I certainly am not advocating for stripping away lanes, especially from thoroughfares, to put in bike lanes. But we are not, by and large, a bike-friendly city. However, Dallasites, it's a very car-conscious city. I see very expensive vehicles, for the most part, on the roads. European cars, the trucks, obviously, Texas, it's a very truck-centric state. But with $5 a gallon gas, I, I can't believe that people do it. And if you are a laborer or you're in the construction or trade industries and you need a truck, I understand. But so many people, they purchase trucks. It is purely for vanity and for show. And that's crazy to me. You know, the only time I could imagine buying a truck paying forty or $50,000 for a souped-up truck with a bed that I'm rarely, if ever, going to use is I would just have to have just such stupid money and not enough places to spread it around, I guess. But people do it here. And, and the SUVs, it's the same thing. And people come up with all kinds of reasons and excuses why they need an SUV as opposed to a more modest car that gets better gas mileage. And I think that for the most part, they're ridiculous. You know, the student loan portfolio, it totals over $1 trillion. And one of the questions of the Biden presidency is, will he forgive student loans or won't he? And if he does forgive student loans, how much forgiveness is he going to dole out? And I know he likes the number $10,000 per borrower. And more progressive Democrats, they're pushing him for more, either total cancellation or like $50,000 per borrower. And for the last two plus years, people who have federal student loans, they haven't had to make payments. They're currently in forbearance and they haven't been accruing interest on those loans either the expiration date on that forbearance is August of 2022. But you know what? I can tell you with certainty that there is no way that Joe Biden, whose presidency, along with the rest of the Democrat Party, are on the ropes. There's no way they're going to restart federal student loan payments in August, just a couple of months away from the midterm election. But I bring this up, it might seem kind of random, but I wonder how many people who have student loans, which they have not had to pay for over two years, which means how much money are they able to save? How many of those people do they have a truck? Do they have a luxury vehicle? Do they have an expensive European vehicle? Or do they have a Lexus or something of that nature? And they're making a car payment every month and they were able to qualify for a personal auto loan. Yes, I am aware that most people, they are probably reporting to a job that's not at their house. They are driving the vehicle to the job. But like I said, if you're not in the construction business and you're reporting to an office, 
then why would you purchase a, a forty or fifty thousand dollar truck? And so I'm just asking the question: Should you be entitled to student loan forgiveness after you've had over two years of forbearance that hasn't accrued any interest? If you are able to afford a very expensive vehicle, a personal vehicle, amid five dollar per gallon gas. The electric vehicles, they are they are really gaining traction. I know that maybe 15 years ago or so, they were considered kind of a joke, niche, uh, just for the, for the real uber white liberals. They're, they're super woke and wealthy. They were getting electric vehicles, some of them. But Tesla has really made them mainstream. Tesla's their fortune. And... Ford is coming out with the F-150 electric, I don't know if it's also a hybrid version, but I looked it up. There are 200,000 plus people on the waiting list because the truck isn't even out yet. So there are at least 200,000 people on the wait list. The base price is over $39,000. That's actually less than what I would have expected for a brand new electric pickup truck. But they'll get people to spend a lot more than that. They're, people are going to want it all souped up. They're going to want leather. They're going to want all the bells and whistles. And so it, it can probably easily turn into a $50,000 vehicle. But here's another question. How many people on that list for the Ford F-150 electric vehicle that starts at $39,000, how many people on that list have a student loan? Should you be on that list for the F-150 if you have a student loan? Should you be looking to get forgiveness, whether it's 10 grand, whether it's 50 grand, if you are out in the market for an F-150 electric vehicle? I'll end on that note with that question. Thank you for tuning in. I'm Bronin. This is Real Texas Radio. Please like and subscribe and we'll catch you on the next episode.